Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that we've been able to sing of now, these deep, uh, mysterious, and so joyful truths of the coming of your Son to be our Savior. So we pray as we reflect now on this uh, part of your word which describes so poignantly uh, Jesus' ministry, we pray that we would be drawn closer to him to serve him more faithfully in this day and time in which you've placed us. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, in our Advent series so far, we've been considering Luke's uh, songs of Advent, and there's four altogether. We've considered two already, the two longest, the Magnificat of Mary, the Benedictus of Zechariah. And both of these anticipate Jesus' birth. They come before his birth and look forward to it. There's a song that we were singing of uh, ourselves just a few moments ago, the songs that the angels sing in Luke chapter 2, the shortest of the Advent hymns, we might say, just two lines, but sung not by any person, but by the heavenly host. And that song accompanies Jesus' birth. The fourth of the Advent songs is the one that we turn to today, Simeon's song. And Simeon's song comes when Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple. Now, this comes, of course, obviously after Jesus' birth and is associated in the Christian calendar with the Feast of Candlemas, which is the, actually the 2nd of February. So we're just a little bit early. The reason it comes uh, traditionally on the 2nd of February is that it follows uh, Mary's purification for the birth of Jesus, which we'll be thinking about in just a moment. And this comes 40 days after the birth of the child. So the events that we read of today don't uh, anticipate Jesus' birth or accompany it, but they uh, announce Jesus' birth and the significance of it in the words of Simeon. And Simeon, in a sense, doesn't act alone. He's got a kind of non-speaking partner, uh, another uh, a woman named Anna, and we'll be considering Simeon's song in its wider context in association with what Anna does, because I think they very much form a kind of tag team in the story that we read today. Well, Summer read the uh, song of uh, Simeon and the oracle that followed it just briefly, but I'd like to set that in context for us. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, we'll read the story as a whole. It starts around verse 21. I'm going to start at verse 21. The reason I say around verse 21 is that some people think this verse concludes what comes before and they take it with the preceding passage. Some think it introduces what comes next and takes it with what follows, which is what I'm going to do today. So we'll read uh, Luke 2. We'll start at verse 21 and we'll finish at verse 40. So I'll read our passage. If I can. I thought I could. Yes, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb 
shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents uh, brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the, con for the uh, revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said, to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a word will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the, of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor or grace of God was upon him. Well, it's quite a story, and although the shortest of the songs set in a very dramatic moment in the life of this young family, and as we set Simeon's song in context, we'll, we'll take the two pairs together. We'll think first about the submission of Mary and Joseph, and Jesus as well, and then the recognition that is brought to Jesus by uh, Simeon and Anna. So the submission of Mary and Joseph. And the actions of Mary and Joseph in this passage and also the infant Jesus uh, might strike us as a little bit odd to record at this point. Of course, these stories are unique to Luke. And it might feel to us like, especially this uh, notice as our passage begins of Jesus' circumcision is a little bit odd. Uh, but this moment of circumcision in Jesus' life is, is an important one for the ministry that he's now, now, actually, from the moment of his birth, embarking on. 
In fact, if some of you might remember a series on Joshua that we did a few years ago now. If you can remember that, well done. But you remember in the story of Israel, in a sense at the birth of Israel, in Joshua chapter 5, care is taken to narrate the circumcision of Israel as they enter the land and now become the people of God. So this moment is something like a parallel effect in Jesus' own life. I think it has three uh, aspects of significance for him and in turn for us. The first is that it signifies his membership in the people of Israel. The sign of circumcision is given to Abraham in Genesis 17. If we read the account of that giving of the covenant sign in Genesis 17, we see that it concludes with the words that any male in Israel who does not bear this sign in their body, they're cut off from his people. They have not obeyed my covenant, says the Lord. So it's deeply important for Jesus, too, that he, that this sign of covenant membership, that he belongs to Israel, is uh, part of his own experience as well. In fact, both Mary and Zechariah and their songs have identified Abraham as the beginning of the promise and how this moves through Abraham's offspring. So important then for Jesus also to be part of this covenant people. The second thing that might be a little more elusive for us is that in some sense, in Jesus in being circumcised, marks in his own body and by his own blood the sign of the old covenant. And as Jesus does this, it anticipates something that he will do with his blood to initiate the new covenant at the end of his life. You might recall that Luke and a couple of the other Gospels say that when Jesus met with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he shared a meal with them and he, he took a cup and, and said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood. And so in some sense, the sign of circumcision as Jesus' life begins points forward to that sign of the covenant in his blood that will come towards the end of his life. And of course, as third thing, as Luke also points out here, it's part of the naming ceremony of Jesus. He now takes the name that was announced to Mary before Jesus was even conceived in her womb. This comes in Luke chapter 1, 31 and 32, and Gabriel says to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, uh, and places Jesus in the line, the royal line of King David as the one whose kingdom would have no end. And so Jesus' circumcision brings all this uh, weight of meaning with it. So not just an odd moment to consider, but one that's absolutely fundamental for his ministry as it begins now to unfold. But of course, Mary and Joseph in doing this are themselves being faithful. And in verses 22 to 24, we see that they come into the temple to accomplish for Mary her purification. As I mentioned Already, uh, this is something that uh, Jewish women did in accordance with the law of Moses. And often it's pointed out here of Mary and Joseph uh, that it, it casts them in a quite a particular light. This is, this is an impoverished young family. When it says that they, to do according to the law, to bring uh, a pair of doves or two pigeons, well, if you look back at uh, Luke 
uh, sorry, at uh, Leviticus chapter 12, where these, uh, this, uh, in the instructions are given for the purification of women, the assumption is that they'll bring a lamb, that, that a lamb is sacrificed for the purification of women after childbirth. But for this child who is to be the lamb of God, there is no lamb. This couple is too poor. And so for those who are not able to bring a lamb, this uh, different sacrifice of the two birds is uh, allowed for. And uh, there's a, we don't often hold up the Westminster Shorter Catechism in, in this fellowship, but there's a fascinating question in that catechism. It's uh, question 27, in case you don't know your catechism by heart. Uh, the question goes, wherein did Christ's uh, humiliation consist? Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer begins, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law. And uh, this is exactly what the scenario between Jesus' super, super circumcision and Mary's purification point towards the submission to God's will and God's law that infuses the life of this young family as Jesus' ministry begins. Well, that's the submission of Mary and Joseph, but what about this much older couple, Simeon and Anna? So we turn to the recognition of Simeon and Anna, and we'll take them in turn. Well, Simeon brings us, of course, to the rationale for our looking at this passage today, another singer of a song, a canticle, a scriptural hymn. But who is he? Uh, what does he say? And why does it matter? Well, Simeon is mentioned only here. Uh, and so all we know about him comes from this passage. Uh, but we have quite a bit to go on. Now, last week, Alex mentioned that there's a particular phrase used of Mary and Zechariah at the point at which they sing their songs, that they're filled with the Spirit. Well, the word filling isn't used of Simeon. But if anything, there is a more insistent recognition in Luke's story of the way that Simeon lived in the Spirit. You'll see that in each of verses 25, 26, and 27, the Spirit is associated with how Simeon lives. In verse 25, the Spirit is upon him. In verse 27, he's drawn into the temple at that moment by the Spirit. This is connected with what's been disclosed to him in verse 26, by the Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, it's usually assumed that Simeon's a very old man, otherwise the promise to him that he wouldn't uh, depart this life until he'd seen the Lord's Christ it wouldn't mean much if he was a young man. It's assumed he's quite an old man. But this last phrase, the Lord's Christ, is a bit of a signal to us. What does Simeon see when he sees the Lord's Christ? Well, of course, it means the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah, the Messiah of God. It's not a frequent uh, phrase used in the Old Testament, but it's used often enough to see what its import is. 
and whenever it's used, it is always used of the royal representative anointed uh, to lead God's people. Uh, David uses it when he refers to Saul. Others use it when they, when they refer to David. But in every case, it's this association of the Lord's anointed with the, the chosen representative of God who is a royal figure. And so Simeon takes this child in his arms at this moment, moved by the Spirit to come into the temple, and we might think, well, that's a little dodgy, a bit of a child snatcher. That can't be good. Uh, but the Greek gives us a, just a little bit of a different scenario as Mary and Joseph come into the temple with Jesus. And there's the aged Simeon. And the word that's used here is that he received the child into his arms. And so I think we have to picture the scenario playing out something like this. The, the family come in and Simeon is there waiting for the one who is the Lord's Christ. And he sees this child and his spirit stirs by the spirit. And he knows that's the one. This child is the one. And as they come together in this divinely appointed meeting in the temple, his eyes meet Mary's eyes. And Mary isn't quite sure perhaps what's going on, but she knows he knows something. And she gives him the child. Zechariah takes the child. And at that moment, in that moment of recognition, sings this song. Well, that's maybe a little bit about who Simeon is, but the, the song he sings comes next then. And it, again, one of the canticles with a Latin name, the, the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and this, the Nunc Dimittis, of course, just the Latin for the first few words. Now you are letting depart is how it begins. It's a brief uh, song of the human singers, the shortest, uh, and I'll just read it again so it's fresh in our thoughts as we look at, at it more closely. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for, the revela for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Well, it's clear in, grammatically, rhetorically, in other ways, that the central affirmation of this song is the brief verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. In the singing of this song, Simeon sees the fulfillment of the divine promise of salvation. And in doing so, he echoes the words of Isaiah. Maybe not immediately clear to us, but he's almost quoting the Greek version of Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall appear, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And it's instructive to notice that as his prayer begins, he's drawing on the language of Isaiah, because the rest of his song also comes from uh, Isaiah's servant songs. Now, there's four servant songs in Isaiah, but it's the second of the servant songs that is the inspiration, if you like, for uh, Simeon's uh, canticle at this point. Now, I'm going to read you a few verses from Isaiah 49, 
almost say, if I can. Uh, and you'll hear, maybe if you've got Luke still open, you'll hear where Simeon's phrases are coming from, and there's some deep significance to this. So here's a, a part then of the beginning of Isaiah 49. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, whom I have glorified. And the Lord said, uh, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring... Uh, sorry, back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may be to the ends of the earth. That's the, the key verses from about verse three to five, the ones that resonate through this song of Simeon. Well, it's not just a curiosity or interesting that this should be the inspiration of Simeon's song. But it's significant because Isaiah's servant is a servant who will know what it is to suffer on behalf of God's people. And in bringing salvation to God's people and to all peoples of the earth uh, would be called upon to suffer, that he would be, as this very song goes on to say in Isaiah 49 verse seven, one who is despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of the nations. There is this sense and this moment of joy and recognition that implicates something more sorrowful for this child to do with the suffering of the servant. And that's in fact what Simeon goes on to speak of as his song finishes. And now he, Mary and Joseph are amazed that, as Luke refers to them, Jesus' mother and father, they're pondering these marvelous words that identify who this child is in terms of Isaiah's servant. When Simeon turns, having blessed God and praising him with this prayer, blesses them. And then turns to Mary and says those poignant words uh, which speak more forthrightly of suffering, picking up that theme where Isaiah's servant song leaves off. So Simeon speaks prophetically to Mary that the one who bears God's salvation in the canticle is also going to be one who is opposed, a stumbling block perhaps, or in the way that the Gospel of John puts it, the light comes into the world, but the world does not know it, and his own people reject him. And as Simeon puts it, he will be for the falling and the rise of many. Falling and rise, not the rise and fall, the normal sequence, but almost that sense of stumbling over him, the falling of many. But then a note of hopefulness, to be sure, and rise. And in fact, in that word rise, there is a little anticipation of resurrection, of new hope. If that's what's true for the nations in this child, what's true for Mary is that a sword will pierce through her own soul also. Mary, Mary, what sword is this? Well, it's easily taken as the pain it will come in seeing this son of hers crucified. 
by the Romans. But in fact, Mary at the cross is part of the story that John tells, not part of the story that Luke tells. So what might this mean in Luke's telling of the story? Well, I, my sense is that it probably points us to those, the, those moments of confusion and rejection that Mary will have felt. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, when Mary, referred to there as the mother of Jesus, with Jesus' brothers, come to meet him. They want to uh, get through to him. They can't. The crowds are too thick. And the, and the, the words, uh, it's reported to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here, and uh, they, they want to see you. And Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who do my will. And uh, what pain might that have brought into Mary's heart? Did she at that moment reflect on this, these words of Simeon's which spoke prophetically into her life? It's just interesting that this is the last time here in this song with Simeon in Luke 2 that Luke will name Mary. The next time he names Mary in his work actually comes in volume 2. It's just after the ascension of Jesus, when Mary, his mother, and his brothers meet with the other disciples to prayer, to pray and await the gift of the Spirit. So some hopefulness there. So this is Simeon and his song and what he says and why. Well, we can see, first of all, that the import of this is the clear recognition, witness, attestation of what the vocation of this child will be. This is Jesus' identity. This is the Lord's Christ, as it's put, with all that implies. And it also has something to imply that the salvation he brings uh, will come at a cost. All this, I think, uh, between the lines, if you'd like, some of it on the lines of what Simeon sings and says. Much more briefly, let's just have a, a glimpse at Anna. Uh, with this, Simeon is done. Uh, and Anna, likewise, a very old person. Appropriate you would have a very old person speaking on this today. Um, she now appears. Simeon uh, speaks like a prophet. Uh, and it lives in the spirit and so on, but he isn't identified as a prophet. Anna is identified as a prophet, although she isn't so directly associated with the spirit, and we don't hear words that she says. But I think this designation of her as a prophetess and one who spends all her time in the temple uh, is meant to bring these associations with her. Well, what, does, what role does she play here? And just two things briefly. One, I think it is significant uh, that here she is, an aged widow, meeting at that very hour, at that moment, with this family. And uh, I'm, uh, for a long time, I've, I've reflected on a meditation I heard of Sinclair Ferguson's on this passage. And, and this observation on Anna has stuck with me that Here's Mary, she's just received this word spoken to her that a sword would pierce her spirit too. And in the providence of God, here's this old widow able to come along beside her uh, to affirm what 
Simeon has just spoken and possibly then also to bring some comfort to Mary as she wonders what exactly this oracle means that she's been given. As Sinclair put it, the, the way God uses just an obscure saint to be there at the right time, for the right, to be the right person, to minister to this girl, this teenage mum, Mary, and to be there to help her to bear the wounds and also to bear the fruit. And I think there's some encouragement there for those of us who labor faithfully, while well, we pray and hope faithfully, certainly in obscurity, uh, that God is able to use any one of us to be that obscure saint who comes alongside another in a moment of need. But beyond this, although we don't hear her words, we've heard Simeon's words, Anna does indeed have something to say. And you'll notice how her uh, little story finishes at the end of verse 38. We don't hear her words, but Anna continues to testify to the identity of this baby. And uh, you'll notice that she says in verse, uh, end of verse 38, that she speaks of him at this point, certainly meaning speaks of Jesus, to all who were awaiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She continues to bear testimony to the identity of this child. Possibly, she's the, is she the first Christian missionary? Hard, hard to say. Well, maybe not quite. Um, but you can see the association that, that she continues to share the identity of Jesus with others. And I think this Christmas, I've certainly prayed it for myself. We could each long for something, pray for something of the spirit of Anna to be also those who joyfully point others to who this child really is. Well, we need to draw these observations to some kind of conclusion. And just for brief thoughts as we draw this time around God's word to a close. Four themes that I think run through the whole of the story from verse 21 right to verse 40. And I think the predominant note is one of obedience. We read again and again the, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. It, it frames the passage as we noted before in verse 39. Uh, the way that Mary and Joseph's uh, faithfulness and obedience to the God's revealed will marks their lives. And in response to that obedient life, there is this overflow of grace. And as one commentator puts it, this salvation history does not simply appear out of a void, but from daily living true to God's word. Now I think we see this through Luke's two volumes, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, how faithful disciples are met with, with grace and uh, important to see that at work also in, in this passage, the, the predominance of obedience in, in each of the actors in the story, whether it's Mary and Joseph, Jesus, himself in a sense, but also Simeon and Anna. A second theme, uh, explicit as the passage begins, implicit as it finishes, is that of sacrifice. Uh, they have to bring a sacrifice. It's not a lamb, it's these two birds, but it reminds us that 
God's grace has some cost to it. And it reminds me of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous words that uh, it's not cheap grace. It is grace, but it bids us come and die and lay down our lives to take up our cross as we become those who follow Jesus. So there's obedience, there's sacrifice. And I think thirdly, there's the joy, certainly, but joy mingled with sorrow. And I'm aware that for many people, you'll be aware that for many people, Christmas is not a time necessarily of unalloyed joy. No friends whose Christmas this year will be a deeply sorrowful one. But what we see in this mixture of joy and sorrow is that it's, there is joy tempered by the sorrow. It's not just triumphalist, but the sorrow is also informed by the joy. This is, there's hope. It's for the fall and rising of many. And I think uh, we do well to remember that in this Christmas season. And that brings us finally to the point that the whole passage is shot through with salvation. Of course, it's the centerpiece of Simeon's song in verse 30, but he himself was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna spoke to those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Through all this, what we see overarching all is God's faithfulness to his promise to be the God who saves. Enabled by the work of his Holy Spirit, and here we see the willingness, too, of Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, in being that Savior. Well, I hope these things are uh, stirring in our spirits. Uh, and beyond that, finally, as we uh, meditate on a passage like this, I think what comes to us as we reflect on these Jesus' ministry at its very beginnings is that we learn more of him and learn to love him. And as I reflected on that, uh, it brought back to mind a prayer by a, a 13th century English saint, and we'll conclude with that prayer. But may we too, who want to be the followers of Jesus, have our lives marked by this love and this obedience that we see on display throughout our passage today. So let's pray together. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits which thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults which thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend, brother, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly. Amen.